I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the School for Dumb Women, the podcast where we investigate the things you're too proud to admit you know nothing about. I'm your host woman, stressed out mother of seven, Hannah Varrell. Joining me is your friend's exposed boob on Instagram stories, Alexandra Haddo. I thought she had three boobs for a second, but no, that was her baby's head. And baby whose head is so big the mum keeps putting a hat on it, Caroline O'Donoghue. I might be a baby, Hannah, but I'm dressed like I'm the banker from Monopoly. (laughs) How dapper. Today we're talking about handy horses, helpful books and Alex's horny Christmas. Caroline, I think I have COVID, but for my feelings, what would you recommend? Well, Alex, have you heard of chicken soup for the soul? Uh, no, but I have had some sausages for my aura. Oh, and some bacon for your self-esteem. Yes, of course. <laughs> A regular um, carnivorous self-esteem boost. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this week I'm talking about self-help. which um, Yeah, I don't know. What are your guys' feeling about self-help as a thing? Um, I think it used to be extremely simplified for people and then it became very spiritual and a lot of bullshit. And as three women that used to work on a women's website, we know how many books get sent through the post that you're like, this is absolute horse shit. And therefore, I think that there are a few out there that are genuinely brilliant and can change the way you think about things like people bang on about the secret Yes, yes. So in general, I think it's horseshit, but then the ones that aren't, I think, are probably extremely, extremely good. Mm. I think you're, I, th- I think that's very correct. Um, Hannah, before I continue, do you have any like specific things that come to mind when I say self-help to you? Yeah, I don't know. Self-help, for some reason, I feel like when we talk about wellness stuff today, it's basically the same thing as self-help. But to me, self-help sounds very sort of like 90s. Yeah, yeah. That's true. It's a very good point. We have sort of re... Um, Repackaged it, it. yeah, yeah. Because I do feel like self-help had this sort of massive boom in the eighties and nineties, where it became sort of a bit one of those things that you would jumble in with like the sad cat lady, the Bridget Jones lady, the lady Mm. who like can't get it together, so she keeps buying books for eight ninety nine. And I think because of that, self-help kind of it got this very very misogynistic kind of lens. I think. Yeah. Is that the men are from Mars? Yes, yeah, Venus, or the other way around. Uh, men are yeah, men are from Mars because that's the one with the monsters, and uh, women are from 
Venus, because that's the one with the grapes. Because that's the hotter one. The hotter one. Yeah, and the one with where all the ladies have smooth legs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just, yeah, wearing a lot of draped sheets and togas and things. Um, I think you've both made really excellent points. And I think, Alex, when we, you know, the three of us all met working in women's media and we really did witness firsthand the sort of, um, the churn, I think, of that industry. We would watch the entire life cycle of a self-help career mm. <laughs> from yes, that, that office. Yes, so true. Like, literally, we would have an article on the website. We used to work at this website called The Pool. It no longer exists. You may remember it. <laughs> you may um, remember it from such things as not paying anyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would honestly just live, like, only do this podcast to make veiled, bitchy references to The Pool for years. Um... <laughs> But so what would often happen is um, like we we had this sort of like weekly space in the schedule called breathing space, which was just any, oh, yes. any old shite really that was like, <laughs> it was really, I think, the beginnings of the kind of the UK culture of like, I went on a walk and then I felt better. Here's oh, 3,000 more. Which have thrived in lockdown. I like, fucking why, hate why it. cycling is good for the soul. I yes. send you guys a, an article of like this every time I see one where it's just like, White lady goes on a run and can't believe she feels nicer after. Yeah, <laughs> white lady goes for a swim and can't feel can't, can't believe she feels nicer. Yeah, um, and then writes yeah. eight hundred words for probably two grand for the Telegraph, gets a huge splash. Fuck off! Take my pitches about cocaine and hookers. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> this is what people actually want to read. So what would happen is that like Mimsy St James would write about her long walk for the pool, <laughs> and <laughs> and then like. <laughs> Three weeks later, and then then it would like do quite well, and then Mimsy yeah. St. James would be asked by the Metro and like Good Morning Britain to go on, and then all of us in the office would watch old Mimsy go on in her good dress <laughs> to talk to Piers about a long walk, and then lo and behold, by November we get a book through the post from her publicist saying, "We know you at the pool simply love Mimsy's walks." Here's- <laughs> Here is Mimsy St. James's on how to walk, walking your way to a better future. I mean, honestly, I know you're parodying it, but it, it that could exactly happen. The, na- the name of the author, the name of the book, everything. It would be on BBC Breakfast being like, ah, well, thank you, Mimsy. And now on to a bombing in yeah. Iran. It's like, not Mimsy St. James of the acid-dealing St. James's. <laughs> or like the oil barons or whatever. It's like, yes, but Mimsy's genius is quite her own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's always always ones that at the book launch, at the start of it, they're all like the picture of their brand. And then by the end, they're like, has anyone got any gear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so we would get Mimsy St. James's book in. And then it would last until like Christmas Eve before we all left for like the, for the holidays or whatever. And then it would be in the box of bullshit that we would then re-gift to our friends. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, someone's like sister-in-law would get it. Yeah, exactly. And she yeah. wouldn't read it. And then it would end up, as I saw today, and actually this is what made me think about it today, because um, I've recently moved house, which means I live exclusively on Facebook Marketplace now. Oh, my dream and world. The, it is like such, it's like what Craigslist used to be. It's that yes. filled with potential and possibility and it's absolute brilliant. unrelegated bullshit dealing. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and I saw like that people give away or try to sell their self-help books on Facebook Marketplace an inordinate amount. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's where Mimsy ends up. She ends up on Facebook Marketplace. Oh, God. 
I'm actually because I I've got a bookcase in my room, and honestly, I think the books that I actually read are kind of always by my bed or like in a different place. But this is almost like my pool bookshelf because it's the stuff that I haven't touched in like four years, and it's it's things like the art of not giving a fuck and stuff like that. And I'm just like, oh, chuck them out. Like, oh <laughs> yes, definitely. Like that sort of art of not giving a fuck thing. That's the kind of like okay, we're kind of having a laugh at the idea of self-help books, but ultimately we're still profiting off of this industry that it has created for us. And, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like... To actually go back to what you said earlier, Alex, this thing of, like, there there are, like, people who I'm sure, you're sure, like, mean well and probably have a lot of research and science to back it up. And yeah. there are also just, like, the charlatans and the Mimsy St. James's who are just, like, opportunistic... And they want to make a buck off people's insecurities. Yeah. But the thing about self-help is that there's like almost no way to differentiate between these people. And particularly if you think back to sort of a pre-internet book buying time. When like, basically every time I'm in a shop now and I pick at a bookshop and I pick up a book. I generally, if I'm interested, I'll generally Google it and see other things mm. the author has done. Or like how it was received or whatever. And yeah. like... If we think back of like the self-help boom of the 80s and 90s, like people didn't have that. So literally they could pick up a book and like it could be like, oh, doctor someone. And you have no idea what kind of a doctor they are. So Gillian it- McKeith, maybe that's how she, yes. she got yes. you know, so big, just through people not knowing that she was going to stick her fingers in your poo. <laughs> Can I have a look at your poo? <laughs> that was really a woman who was just... She like sold her soul to the devil. She was like, it was like her her monkey's paw wish. She was like, I will become rich and famous if I have to touch poo every day. <laughs> oh my god, that is so true. Yeah, it is. It is exactly that sort of thing that you could like just about get away with. I mean, Marie Kondo is richer than God by telling us to fold our things and you know only keep things that spark joy. She mm. lives in a dream world. Like, that's not how life works. However, you will pay a £10 fee for her book to have a hope at, like, a cleaner life. You're like, I, yeah. you're like, I love oh, how you just said my- a £10 fee. As if it's <laughs> <laughs> not just called buying a book. I'll buy a ticket for the book. <laughs> <laughs> One book, please. <laughs> I'm renting it. <laughs> Yeah, like you're just there being like, oh, I won't drink too much or shag the wrong people if I fold my jumpers neatly. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what they sell to you, kind of. Totally. I I think as well, I think what's weird as well is that the Marie Kondo thing happened a few years ago and that was obviously a a global smash or whatever. And then the sort of UK version of that came along, which was Mrs. Hinch. Oh, yeah, she's massive, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, massive. Like, I... It's one of those things where it's like, I think because media has become so segmented now because people are, don't really watch TV. Yeah. And it's like, someone could be like a massive global sensation and you have never heard of them. And I feel that way about Mrs. Hinch. Agreed. Like uh, somebody said to me the other day, oh, that post you did is a bit like Mrs. Hinch is such and such. And I was like, where? Yeah. Hey. Yeah. yeah. Thing, it's absolutely huge. Yeah. But it, but it, it is a sort of like mentality of like, you know, if you can just get a handle on this one small, tiny corner of your life, it will sort of spread out and make the rest of your life make more sense mm. and have more yeah, logic. Exactly. And weirdly, like, I think, like, Jordan Peterson has had the same sort of thing. And he's the kind of the big self-help guru for men. He's like sort of the, the man who made self-help for men a thing, I think. Oh, is again. he? I thought he was a cricketer. <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> His thing has always been that sort of like self-helpy language which is like because he's had like quite a long career and now he's just like pivoted in the last few years to like that classic internet man thing of like they're obsessed with the plains of ancient africa 
Like where they're just like, um, oh, when we were living in tribes of the plains of Africa, <laughs> men would ha- go out with 17 women before the time he was 18. Wouldn't that have been nice kind of thing? And like talking about right, these weird yeah. evolutionary biologies. But like he's also, he constantly talks about like getting people to like make their beds and stuff. And like, oh, if you just make your bed every day, you'll be amazed at how good you'll feel about yourself. It's like proper Mimsy St. James. It's, so it's a really weird combination of like eugenics and orderliness. Yeah. Although that make the bed thing, I feel bad um, agreeing with that. But I think it's just because my dad like drummed that into me from day one. He was like, make your bed every day. That's a good, that's a small thing. Always walk people to the door and always pick them up from the train station and always make your bed. I mean, to, once again, Jeff is the real voice of reason and all that. He should, I mean... Someone get him a publishing deal. Yeah, he's got more than Lindsay St. James ever has to offer, really. Yeah, so I would love to read Jeff Haddo's self-help book, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> Just a lot of nice, useful tips, a lot of flower arranging stuff, and then the odd Scottish rant. <laughs> Does he flower arrange as well? Yeah, he loves flower arranging. Always has. Always a surprise. <laughs> um... But, like, going back to sort of the, the sort of long history of stuff, it's set up. It's weird that, like, it's this genre that most people that you talk to would not admit to reading. And yet, yeah. like, there's so many, like, things in the culture that come from self help. Like, everyone knows the phrase chicken soup for the soul. Everyone knows men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Everyone knows how to win friends and influence people. Everyone knows about the secret. So it's like, these mm. weird things where, like, the culture absorbs it kind of ambiently. You know what I mean? It's it's like a, like a herd immunity thing where like yeah, one yeah. person in a hundred reads the book and then the idea sort of distills. Yeah, because you'll be like, yeah, well, babe, you know what you need to do? I read this in the in the secret, and then that'll go on and on and on and like yeah, yeah. And she'll tell two friends, and she'll tell two friends. Exactly, it's like a pyramid scheme. I feel like though it it is you know un- under its new name of like wellness, it is way more popular now to like. I mean, if we were still taking tubes. I think you would see more people like reading self-help books on the tube now than you would have done sort of, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. Do you think so? Yeah, no, I agree with Hannah. I think people are a little bit more open about reading stuff like that now. Like they would read something that's like how to get the job you want and keep it whilst keeping your man on his toes. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like they've gone a bit posher as well in, in recent years and they're like... Like, like I'm thinking specifically about that Liz Gilbert book, like Eat, Pray, Love for one, which isn't really self-help so much as it is like a memoir with lessons inside, which yeah. I think is, is like the real kind of female mainstream way of doing it, I think. But also Big Magic, which is like... Oh, that's the one that's about creativity. Oh, I love... You recommended that to me. Yeah, Caroline, you're my barometer for like no bullshit stuff because we're the opposite of Mimsy St. James. And when you told me to read Big Magic, I was like, okay, it must be good then because she's going on about it and I read it while I was away um tra- traveling oh my god I am Elizabeth Gilbert um, <laughs> and uh yeah and it was really great because it was just it was like helpful useful tips about being creative and stuff that had happened to her in the past rather than being like everybody is a novelist and a, an amazing creator it was more just like if you've got this idea this is how to use it or like everybody's got something in them it might not be this it might not be that but like it was just it was a nice read that actually made me start writing something at the time do you know what I mean which is all you need yeah exactly and I, th- I think what's to, to go into sort of like the the history of these things so like it's one of those things where like whenever we go into the history of something it'll be like 
The first self-help appeared in ancient Egypt when a, 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 a handbook for farming grain was passed among farmers. They were like, that's not self-help. And they'll be like, but actually it was the Victorian times. They're like, yes, obviously. Okay. Yeah. And so um, the 1800s, in 1859, the first like proper like manual, which was Samuel Smiles, is literally called Self-Help. And it was oh. like this collection of inspirational stories about these hardworking men that could rise through the ranks, which makes complete sense because like this is the 1800s, like it's the Industrial Revolution and like there's a lot of people who are working class becoming middle class and a lot of people who are middle class becoming extremely rich and like... So you can, you can so see how like these examples would be held up and like you would want to... Because you're having all this like class mobility and social mobility for the first time you would be like, okay, well, we have to analyze the pattern of all of these examples mm. of all these people who did it. And let's find like the riddle. Let's find the code to make this whole thing work for ourselves. Which like, I think is very interesting because if you think about the industrial revolution and it's like where productivity has become mechanized in this new way where it's not like not about farms anymore or whatever and not about doing piecework it's about machines that are making things and it's about it's like very much an era that's defined by productivity and then yeah. it's like we almost see the self as being this machine that can be improved and be and like be mm. more productive and whatever you're not just accepting anymore that you're just a person who goes to your job and like sees your family in the evening and goes to church on a sunday it's like no there's like room for improvement and improving your station in life and that's realistic for the first time ever yeah and i guess as well books are quite i mean depending on the price of samuel smiley's thing books can be quite democratic yeah, well, totally. as long as that's actually as long as the working class at the time like could read. I don't know what literacy levels would have been like at the time. So Getting I guess it's better. kind of like a, an opportunity <laughs> for everyone. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And um, weirdly, for Samuel Smiley's books, it was it sold so well that it, like that was the same year that Darwin's Origin of the Species came out, and wow. it outsold it by millions. The only book it didn't outsell was the Bible. So oh, like God, that's, that's how interesting. it was like this. It was this instant sort of moment of like yes, of course. So like after that, it was like this complete boom, and like to the point where by 1913 it had become like a meme. Like people were already being sniffy about it. It was like <laughs> thir- it had been around for like 30 or 40 years at this point, properly as a genre. And like there was this bit in this newspaper by this writer called um, G. K. Chesterton who said. There are books showing men how to succeed in everything, and they are written by men who cannot even succeed in writing books. Oh, <laughs> burn. But is all, I think that is the ultimate joke. It's that, like, people go to a conference about, for, like, financial, you know, stability or independence or success or whatever, and the conference is in, like, a Marriott hotel. <laughs> and it's like, well, if this guy is so rich, how come he's, not, how come he's talking to us, you know? How yeah, come we're paying, yeah. like, 60 quid to see hear him talk if he's so rich? So it sort of like becomes more and more of a thing throughout the 20th century. But the weird thing is is that nobody's studying the people who are buying it. Nobody's like studying the success rate at all. And like it's also discovered that 80% of the people who buy self-help books are repeat buyers. And that most of them don't seem to read past the first 20 pages. Yeah, because they like they like the idea of it. That's so interesting. That's like um, that's like when you sell diets to people, isn't it? Yeah. It's like the whole point of selling a diet is that you want it not to work so that they'll come back and spend more money with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like anything like that. It's like you want it to work for a little while. Mm. Um, you want it to work just enough to kind of titillate them and they'd be like, well, something's changed for a bit. 
but um, you know, I need to read more of this book. But that's the thing I I don't like about self help books. It's like in theory, I'm like, yeah, okay, good plan. But the the major defect is that reading the book doesn't cure you you then have to take the action that the book prescribes absolutely and i think that's what's the the amazing sort of out for all self-help books isn't it it's that so much of self-help books it's like it has like specific instructions where it'll be like oh write down your intentions and then do Mm -hmm. this and then do that whatever and a lot of it is about like the directives are really nebulous and it's about it's about like intention and it's about like the secret is a great example it's one of the biggest self-help tomes in the world And it's all about like, okay, it's about putting that desire out into the universe. But then what that creates for the author is the ultimate get out clause. Because because basically, if it works for someone, then they can say the secret worked. And if it doesn't work, they can say, well, your intention wasn't strong enough. Yeah, you didn't (laughs) do it right. Yeah, you didn't do it right, exactly. I think it's to do with the sort of people that like self-help books. And I'm sort of saying that I don't read self-help books, but I do the equivalent. You know, I'll, I'll look at like what the latest fad or trend is in in a certain aspect of life or whatever and be like oh I'll try that because really I'm like I'm hoping it rewires my brain so I'm really productive really all you need to do is like throw my phone out the window and I'll get something done <laughs> oh but my like, god I know do you know what I mean you're 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 looking for the quick fix you're looking for someone to say oh you never realized if you actually just count backwards from 13 you can concentrate for two and a half hours and yeah. be really smart like so <laughs> that, true it's what everybody what wants yeah that's what you're clinging on to that's why you you know, that's why you try new stuff. And like, to a certain degree, you know, it's a bit of fun or whatever. And it gives you, and me, for me, buying, th- this is why people only read the first 20 pages because they've gone out and bought the book. They're already thinking, oh, <laughs> they've done their part. this is going to yeah. change who I am. And, and that's, it, that in itself is sometimes the thrill. Then when you're actually reading it and you're like, what science, fuck off. <laughs> so, oh, you're, you're so right. And I think that can be sort of put to all book book reading and book buying really or the difference difference between book buying and book reading which is that like you feel great about yourself because of the kind of person that you're going to be no matter what the book is um Mm. but then you you forget that what book buying doesn't do is that it doesn't carve out nine hours of time to read a book and it doesn't make you want to read it either but you just sort of have that that buzz It's, it's like a its own form of drug addiction i think it's that's quite interesting as well when you look at self help under the lens of um like after the Black Lives Matter movement, like during the summer, when there was this sort of real focus on white people prescribing other white people anti-racist work and books and that kind of thing. And like this idea that people were going out to buy, it was like that is self-help, like to buy books to cure themselves of their own racism. And I I think what many people are commenting on, um, what Otega Wogba uh, wrote about in her book Whites was like people thinking that this purchasing of of material was just enough and mm. that it was it, it became its own kind of like weird very specific self-help yeah absolutely and and alleviation of well, not alleviation of guilt but like thinking you're doing something to assuage you know the guilt that you feel or the things that you can't control and you think oh well if i educate myself i'll you know, I'll be rid of all this. And it's kind of the same with self-help. Like if I educate myself on why I'm making these decisions or why I work like this or why this keeps happening to me, then yeah. I'll be fine. You know, it'll, it'll all be fine. But it's I've read this thing. It's kind of exactly what you just said. Book buying and book reading are two different habits. Like it's so true. Completely. So that's sort of like the negative thing against self-help. But I think that there is positives as well, which is, first of all, I think with the vast majority of problems in your life that aren't like, cancer or poverty you know yeah, yeah it's yeah. I- identifying the problem is 
a huge part of solving it. Do you know what I mean? And like, I think for a lot of people, I think finding the language for a problem is such a big part of it. And I think that's what the first 20 pages of a self-help book does. Yes, that's exactly right. Like I, I remember somebody saying this about Sex and the City when it finished as well, was that like what Sex and the City did for women was that it like gave it, it, it sort of made that sort of conversation about sex and relationships and that sort of terming and classing of things of like the kind of men who likes this and the kind of men like that. It made it mainstream and it gave everyone like a common dialogue and a common dictionary to talk about things. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm sure lots of people had had their butt licked, but no one knew it was called rimming until Sex and the City said so. You know, that kind of thing. And you can apply that to sort of, to so much. Like whether it's like, and the way that we know that when someone says, oh, I'm really doing it in a kind of a secret way or the secret on this, you know exactly what they mean. Yeah. And it becomes this like very interesting shorthand. And like what I also think is quite interesting in favour of self-help is that I think it catches people who fall between a problem and the institution that's supposed to solve it, if you yes. know what I mean. Yeah. For example, like I think the way that most medical institutions treat mental illness and mental health is like like extremely lacking, as everybody knows, as everybody who's ever read even the smallest thing about mental health. And so mm-hmm. like... I've I've spoken to so many people, just like friends who have tried to get on the NHS for their depression or their anxiety or their panic attacks or whatever. And the amount of time that even just to set up those appointments takes could be the difference between someone like living or dying or being able to go to work or not being able to go to work. And then self-help books kind of just come in to fill that void of like, you know, tips for managing your breathing that make you yeah. feel more calm, that make you do this. I do think that is very valuable but only because these institutions are failing so many people in so many ways. And it's the same like for like financial help books. It's like poverty is an institutional problem, not really most in most cases an individualistic problem. Yeah. But we act like it is. But do you think that if society was fixed, if we didn't have poverty and we didn't have and, and we were able to support people with mental health problems, like do you think we wouldn't have self-help books because I, I think we still would because the kind of like the nature of being human is to constantly like aspire to something or like be unsatisfied with your life in some way rich like, white I think women would if, still buy them <laughs> yeah i think rich white women would still want to know how to walk <laughs> <laughs> no it's so true yeah no I, I think you're totally right that there would there will always be a corresponding self-help book for whatever either not even problem but whatever thing is happening in society Mm. like I think the Marie Kondo thing was absolutely this reaction to sort of the Amazon Prime generation right of like people just like ordering crap and having bollocks around them all the time that they really look up one day and they realize they hate it so what's our what's our school for dumb women self-help book gonna be about like, are we already a self-help book? Is that what this is? Are we a self-help podcast? <laughs> no, the thing is, I think there's a way we could spin all this because we're all into the like, oh, don't worry. Admit that you don't know things about things. It's fine. Yeah. So that could already be spinned quite well. Hannah, I think you could be the kind of self-help guru who like finds like an insight about like glow worms in South Africa or something. <laughs> and it's like, oh, do you know that they actually, after they mate, they make each other a cup of tea and then that becomes like the founding insight for a whole empire yeah. of like a thing. But really, we should all be liquidating our guts in order to transform <laughs> into, you know, a beautiful butterfly. Yes, I would read that. 
Yeah, uh, Alex, I think you could be, you could definitely do a self-help memoir that's like, I was a wreckhead, now I'm a millionaire. Yeah. So, but, will, so will you. But crucially, I'm still a wreckhead while I'm a millionaire because I hate it at the end where they go all boring. It sucks. <laughs> I, I just want to be the same as I am now, but rich. <laughs> Caroline, what's yours about then? Oh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Your self-help book is how to keep your relationship spicy because I still want to be you and Gavin all these years on. We do keep it spicy, mostly with with, uh, voices and costumes. So Hannah, today you're talking about one of my childhood heroes and it's not even Roy Keane. It's not Roy Keane, although um, I understand you're very fond of him. Oh my God, someday I'll get into it on this very podcast, but not today. Oh, please do Roy Keane as a segment. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this week I am talking about the film Black Beauty, which Caroline, I I don't even need to ask you if you've seen it. You've seen it, right? Oh my God, have I seen it? (laughs) You know, I I used to have it on VHS and uh, I used to watch it whenever I had a toothache. Oh, that's so cute. It was my favourite thing. And Alex, you you are a non-horse person. You are not a horse girl. No, I haven't seen it. I know know it's about a horse. Yes, but you did make a comment that made me think that you think it's about racing. I thought it was about maybe a racehorse. Am I getting that confused with red rum? (laughs) (laughs) There's some kind of wires crossed here. Basically, Black Beauty, which came out in 1994, stars Alan Cumming. Oh, um, I love him. No! Yeah. Alan Cumming yeah. is Black Beauty! Yeah, no, I, I was totally like, I forgot that it was him. And oh now I'm God. connecting up and I'm like, oh, oh of Alan course! Cumming. So Alan Cumming basically narrates this sort of autobiographical story of a horse. And he. Um, <laughs> just imagining just the horse, horse, like, as a really camp Alan Cumming. Like, hey! <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? There is, a, there is a really good bit where he talks about oats and how much he loves oats. oats. And he's just like, oh, beautiful, sticky oats. Delicious oh, oats. Chewy, chewy oats. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I completely forgot about that part. <laughs> Delicious oats. Oh, come here with your oats. Oh, and they, and it, is, it is quite homoerotic as well. That was a really good impression of him. Delicious oats. Um, but anyway, so it's it's about this horse who basically, and it's kind of throughout his life, he gets sold to different people. And at one point he kind of breaks his knees and so he gets like less valuable and he gets sold into like a sort of taxi cab kind of guy. And um, he, as he sort of gets older and less beautiful, he gets into some bad situations. And it's very sad. It's a very sad film. I had no idea. I thought it was either about racing or like a young girl owning a horse called Black Beauty. No, no. Well, do you know what? The, so the reason I was thinking about doing this is because there is a Disney version of Black Beauty coming out. I think it's out now, actually. <gasps> really? Which involves, yeah, which involves a young girl who has a horse called Black Beauty. And it looks absolutely shit. It looks so bad. They've like, it's, it's like an adaptation that's not at all got the same story. Like it's set in the present day. I don't think the horse has a voice. It so definitely doesn't talk about oats. Basically, they're just trading off the Black Beauty IP kind of thing. I think so. And it's just about a horse girl and like, me- like mental health and stuff. <laughs> Fuck that! Which, like, Give me the inner monologue of a horse only. I just thought, I just thought in light of that new Disney one coming out, I just wanted to potter around in the world of Black Beauty for a bit. And and often, like, our best segments are the ones that have, like, a big point at the end of them. Mm-hmm. This doesn't have a point. This is very much a meander, but I found some very enjoyable stuff along the way. So yeah, I hope great. that's okay with you guys. Yes. I'm here for it. So, I mean, firstly, Black Beauty was a book before it was a lovely film starring Alan Cumming. Yes, I um, have read it. 
the author Anna Sewell, she was she was born in 1820, so she was like actually around the time that Sam Smiley is that his name yeah, published Sam the Smiley. first self help book. Oh, so maybe time. she was like, I can do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? I was just thinking as you as you were introducing this, um, Hannah, when you were describing the plot of Black Beauty to mm. Alex, which is like we were just talking a minute ago about. Um, in the self-help segment about how the Victorian time and the Industrial Revolution was all yes. about upward mobility and all this kind of stuff. And actually, Black Beauty is a—it's a story about sort of downward mobility, isn't it? Yeah, for the horse, that's such a good point. Yeah, yeah. It is. Oh. because also Black Beauty trades on his—I be- mean, I guess—is traded on his beauty because he starts out at this like some quite fancy owners, and then as he sort of gets like older and his knees get damaged he um yeah he he does have to go into the daily grind a bit more yeah and it's just like sorry do you mind if i just wax about how i feel about this for a second oh absolutely (laughs) because i think what that movie came out in like the sort of early 90s or whatever 94 yeah 94 yeah so we're talking we're talking blair britain right and like nearly 97 yeah but what Black Beauty is, is that he's like a victim of circumstance and he, that's the whole point of the movie and that's why the movie is so sort of like terrifying and sad is because he's this horse that like is born into this like, he's got great like horse lineage parents. He's given to this mm. like lovely like posh family and then quite suddenly the mum is taken ill and has to like go to Spain because she has to go for the good weather and a good yeah, health. Yeah, she, she has a mysterious sort of... Um... 19th century disease like consumption or something yeah sunnier climes yeah where, where the cure is the sun for some reason <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> like yeah. they've got like three spots and um Rickets. and then like so and this sort of just keeps happening it's this keep downward spiral where like he's sort of like the victim of circumstance and then mm. he can't help that he gets old he can't help that his owners trade him on and keep dying and it's sort of it feels like this kind of an like very interesting analogy in like a post thatcher britain where it's like it's all about like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and it's with Black Beauty it's about like the inability to do that and how like there's nothing there's no system or program to catch Black Beauty when he falls you know it's I Daniel Blake for horses oh my god it is it is I Daniel Blake for horses that's exactly what I was getting at thank you (laughs) Daniel Blake Um, yeah, I think I think your point about it being um, kind of in nineteenth century as well is important because because horses were kind of like horses powered everything. They didn't have cars and stuff, so like a horse would take you places, and a horse would, you know, help to grind the millstone to make the flour, and like literally doing everything. Yeah, and so horses were also a kind of like a status symbol for for a lot of people, like. And so a pretty horse is also like, oh, look, I'm so... It's like, it's like what being pale was in yeah. sort of like yeah. at that time. It was like, oh, I'm so rich that I don't need to Work have an exhausted fields. horse yeah. or like have a tan. Yeah. That's so true. Because like, I think now if anybody we know has any horse at all of any description, it's like, wow, fancy. But back then, like horses were such a part of the fabric of society that it's like, okay, everybody has a horse. But what if I have the nimblest, thinnest, longest horse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. What if my horse has the biggest dick of them all, metaphorically? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so Anna Sewell, like I was saying, she yeah, she was born in 1820. She was from a Quaker family. When she was a child, she injured her legs um, and therefore became more reliant on, guess what, horses mm. to get around. Oh. So like horse and buggy kind of thing. I'm getting like tones of the secret garden here as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah. 
And she, so she never married, apparently. She, apparently she never had a romantic attachment. I don't know how they verified that. Because she was a lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> Just because she wasn't married doesn't mean she wasn't, you know. Wasn't getting it. Getting it, yeah. 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 I mean, it wouldn't be the first lesbian woman to hang around a stable yard, so. Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> true, yeah. And she um, got Alan coming to narrate the film, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she was 51 when she wrote the book. She? Oh, good on her. Oh, so it was kind of like towards the end of the 19th century that she actually wrote it then. Yeah, so well, it was published in 1877 and she was paid 20 quid for it, which today, I looked this up, today is about £2,400. Oh, still Which is crazy because then it became an instant success. Like it was so, so popular. It was one of the most, like most sold books ever. Wow. For a long, long time. And it's still in the top, I don't know, sort of the top 100 maybe, something like that. Is it a good Um, read? Like if I was to read it now, would I enjoy it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I I read it when I was a kid and yeah, I think so. Like... I think I think what it was as well, it wasn't it wasn't just about the horse being great. It was more like it was like a look into all these different layers of society. Yeah. Well, that's so that's actually why she wrote it as well. So she wrote it not because she was just sort of fancy going into a horse's brain for a bit. <laughs> she actually she actually wanted to like change society and she wanted to change the way that horses were cared for because I mean like like we were saying everybody everybody had a horse a lot of people relied on them for their you know livelihood oh right and so often they'd have to push their horses really really hard and they'd have to you know like whip them and stuff to make them do what they needed and she hated that so she actually wrote it in order to make life better for horses which is also why it's so kind of horrible to read in some bits like there's some really sad moments like there's a bit where they almost all die in a fire in a barn um, because someone like left a cigar somewhere and there's a bit where they almost die in a flood in a river and then there's the bit towards the end this is a big spoiler where um, black beauty's favorite favorite of a friend ginger like they finally reunite after years apart and he's like oh my god ginger like you're back again this is fantastic is ginger a horse or a person ginger's Ginger's a horse ginger's a horse But then he sees Ginger's corpse being carted past him. <gasps> like, yeah, it's just awful. unceremoniously. Ugh. Is this like great expectations? Yesterday, and I was like, yeah, this is really grim. It's really bad. It sounds really like a bad. Dickens novel, but with a yeah. horse. It's it's very that, and it's so funny because I can I can just hear Alan Cummings' narration when you describe that scene. It's like Ginger, what have they done to you? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's word for word what he says. Yeah, I always thought Black Beauty was a female horse as well. Oh no, very much oh, a man's man. man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but then the thing is as well. So, so like I said, it was an instant success. Sold loads and loads of copies. Anna Sewell actually died five months after after publication um, of hepatitis. Oh, I was going to say, I hope it was of like champagne overdose after her big paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) But then it actually did change the way that people treated horses. Like it was like it was because it was one of the first times that people were kind of like, oh yeah, I guess horses do have feelings. And it's probably not very nice for them when we, you know, tie their heads up in a bearing rein, which is when you sort of like um, arch their necks for them because you like them looking pretty. Yeah. And like treating them bad on taxis and stuff. And people in America, people would like give the book to like taxi, taxi cab drivers and stuff. And like it was basically like people who nowadays would be in Peter really took up the book and were like, oh, I need to I need to give this to people. Oh, that's great. It did what she wanted it to do. 
Yeah, exactly. Which is like, it's just very, it's very pure, isn't it? It's very yeah. pure. I read, so, I, I, I listened to this thing the other day, you know, that podcast you're wrong about, which is basically this podcast, mm. but much better. Um, cool. yes. is uh, and like they do an enormous amount of research but they were talking about how the idea of the, the legal idea of animal abuse actually existed before child abuse wow yeah that yeah. doesn't surprise me at all the biggest do you know what the donation or at least this was true about 18 months two years ago it might have changed now but do you know what charity gets the most donations in the UK? Oh God, is it donkeys? Dog the don- trust. The donkeys. Is it the donkeys? Yeah. yeah. They have such sad adverts, Caroline. Wow. But it is a weird thing where like, and you know, if, if there's a film where a dog, you know, nearly dies or something, people can't handle it. And I'm like, you know, people have died in this film. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It doesn't, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to talk briefly about the film version again. Oh, of um, course. As we did at the start. Um, so the film was a massive flop when it was released because it was released on the same weekend as The Mask, which I feel like Caroline no! is like oh! a perfect intersection of your interests. Oh my yeah. God, totally. Wow. <laughs> I loved both those things so that you can do both. You can have it all. Yeah, well, <laughs> apart from no one went to see Black Beauty. Yeah. Everyone was like, Jim Carrey, he's so spunky. I was definitely a casualty <laughs> of that. Like, I watched The Mask every week of my childhood and I've never seen Black Beauty. Yeah, and, and you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I'm this mess now. <laughs> yeah. But there are actually a few different adaptations of Black Beauty, which I never realised. There, there was one in 1971, which starred Mark Lester, who is the little boy that played Oliver in, in Oliver. Oh, wow. Um, who, by the way, is now, is now an osteopath. And he once claimed to be the father of Michael Jackson's children. I feel like Mark Lester needs his own segment. What? Definitely. <laughs> and is now an osteopath. An osteopath who might be the fa- father of... <laughs> Yes, wow. who claimed he was a sperm donor for Michael Jackson, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's quite a quite a reach there. Exactly. Oliver. My my final um so my final Black Beauty film fact is that Black Beauty in fact was played by five different black horses because I guess you've got to teach them to do quite a lot of different stuff. And it's probably just easier to have lots of horses so they'd yeah. like paint the star on he's got a little white star on his forehead which they would paint on. Um and one of the horses was called was called Billy. And Billy lived to 30 years old and wow. only died in April 2020. Another victim of the pandemic. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so he, his, the groomer who um, looked after him in the film was the person who bought him and took him to Wales. And um, they just had a lovely life together. They've got a Facebook group. Oh my and, God. Um, it just had, it seemed to have a really nice time. She threw a 30th birthday for him before he died and 200 people turned up to his party oh my god i feel like it's more people than i would ever have at my 30th birthday and i'm i'm very impressed yeah i love that i love that as well because um at the very very end of black beauty which basically this point where like black beauty is like he's gone really really old he's been like so beat up by his various abusive owners and he's like ends up at this horrible horse fair and then this like oh my God, the most handsome man in the world walks into the horse fair and then Black Beauty <laughs> recognises him as um, young Joe who was like yes. this like stable lad who was like 12 when he was at his first home in the lovely fancy house and who had like really fucked up really badly looking after him and like Black Beauty got a really bad cold and almost died. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then so now it's like 15 years later Joe's a hot man and Joe <laughs> buys him and like basically he like Black Beauty gets to live out in retirement with Joe who's hot. Oh my yeah. god. But it's just like what happened to Billy the horse. It's just like what ha- yeah. 
And then Joe threw him a big birthday party. Oh my god! I wonder where that, that actor is now who plays Joe. This is so hot. And why am I always picturing Joe as like an elderly Hugh Jackman type? Oh uh, yeah, no, it's 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 like oh, he's like this big, large, thick, lovely, hot man. But the, because they obviously the, because the the audience are obviously children and they want the children to be able to instantly recognize that this is the kid from earlier, they put him in like the same clothes. Yeah. <laughs> so he's wearing like a tiny like Aladdin vest and a hat, from what I recall, and a t- little scarf, little jaunty scarf. You can just so tell it was like the thirstiest lady casting director ever being like, it's wall to wall kids and horses. I need someone nice to look at. She just wanted to bump into her first love and let him look after her for the rest of her days. (laughs) I want to find this clip so so she can, so Alex can see how hot it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll inundate you with clips after Please do. My final point, which I totally forgot to say earlier, uh, was that Black Beauty wasn't originally meant to be a, a child. I don't like. I don't know how it's become a children's story. Really, like I think it's just mm-hmm. because it's animals. Because children because actually, love horses like, and girls will always yeah, love horses. That's it. But it was written for adults initially, and, oh, right. and I do feel like it's pretty harrowing. So, I find it strange that it's it's kind of like in the children's uh, section. I think but, it's um, a thing of like. I think it's almost entirely driven by little girls and preteen girls. And what they love more than anything is horses and drama. They like girls love tragedy. Yeah. It's like we were the industry <laughs> that made Titanic a thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just love it. Horses and tragedy. You can't yeah. lose. <laughs> <laughs> and it's perfect for Christmas. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So it's time for our smart lesson where we pool our collective knowledge and try to become that most rarest of things, a festive smart woman. Alex, what do you have for us today? <laughs> Hello, well, I'm in the chopper over the A14, Caroline, and I've got some... <laughs> some big traffic piling up from Junction 8, but uh, I think we're all going to get home in time for Christmas. Um, 
My smart lesson this week, it's very succinct. Um, it's called How to Fantasise About the Pal Christmas You Could Be Having Whilst You Argue With Your Family. Now, sadly, Boris Johnson has indicated that we, in fact, will be able to go home for Christmas, <laughs> uh, which uh, we we're all hoping wouldn't happen because I don't know about you, I'm 32 and I've been brought up on sitcoms, obviously not wanting to portray a real life Christmas where everyone has to go home to their respective small and very boring hometowns from the city and they all have Christmas together, like in Friends, like in New Girl, like everything. Um, mm. And uh, essentially I thought this might be the first year where I could actually spend Christmas with my friends because we'd have to do it. Mm. Um, uh, but alas, no, I must go home because if I don't go home, I'll be plagued by guilt. So if I was to stay with my friends out of choice, it wouldn't be fun either way is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, um, after I ask you two what you're doing for Christmas, to see if I can tag along to that instead, um, <laughs> is, uh, is I'm going to show you how to fantasise that you're with your friends and try and mould your family into the sort of friend Christmas you would actually like to have. Um, but firstly, Caroline, Hannah, what are you guys doing for Christmas? Uh, well, I am very paranoid about my parents and I'm probably going to... Um, make us all have Christmas lunch in the garden that is my current plan (laughs) wow Uh, it'll be cold and it'll be sad and the food will get cold and uh, all the presents will blow away (laughs) no I think it'll be one of those ones where everything comes good in the end and there'll be lots of fairy lights and maybe an outdoor fire oh lovely yes Good plan. I think like any any Christmas where there's like a slightly alternate plan, what it will be is there'll be half of the table will be like, oh, this is nice, isn't it? This is a bit different. This is, oh, we all like this. Yeah. And then half the table just absolutely not having it, being super negative, talking about like how the turkey's gone cold and how this sucks. And like it'll be one person crying because it's trying to make something nice and one person like baffled and angry while the other person's crying. Yes, and also my dad, even on a normal Christmas, my dad will just go to the microwave about five times during the meal to, to make sure that his dinner is, like, burning his tongue with every bite. So um, <laughs> that'll be happening, like, times five. Love it. Love Excellent. it. Excellent. Caroline, what are you up to? You're staying in the UK, aren't you? I am, yes, because my family are, or the bulk of my family in Ireland, so I will not be flying back. Um, but, I, so yeah, so it's a weird sort of assortment this year because... Um, me and Gavin are going down to his parents' house for Christmas lunch and uh, we're taking my brother with me Lovely. Who, who has never met Gavin's family and so he's just going to be the Christmas orphan. Um, and I just, I, in my experience, it's always good at any Christmas when there's a Christmas orphan, which is, of course, like the person who is unattached and who doesn't have anywhere else to go isn't really the boyfriend or wife yeah. of anyone. Is just kind of there because of like circumstance. I, I feel like the, the Christmas orphan like makes everybody behave really well. Yes, the Christmas orphan that is, is the perfect Christmas accessory. Yes, yes that's perfect. so true, Caroline. I never yeah. thought about that. One of the best Christmases we had was when my boyfriend who was called Jose and lived and was from El Salvador had to stay in in the UK so he came to mine and there was no rows that year well less exactly less rows. fewer rows what, what happens is that like people are people feel like that they're in a Christmas film when there's a Christmas orphan around because they feel really magnanimous they're like yeah mm. this is what Christmas is about it's taking people in off the street like Jose and yes. uh, and also they can't fight in front of them so it's just I think it's really good God, yeah, just yeah. so wise. If anyone wants to be my Christmas orphan so that I don't row with my family for five days, please get in touch. <laughs> Email dumbwomanpod at gmail.com. Yeah. They have to be selected very carefully. I think you would make a great Christmas orphan, Alex. Thank you. Because so it has to be someone who's like, 
unfortunately, I hate to be ageist, they have to be young. Because having just like someone's old bachelor uncle around isn't the same thing. No, that's more of like a, is he going to bring someone weird back? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very that. Like, um, it has to be someone kind of quite young, quite chirpy, quite like up for things. And yeah, someone, someone who puts a brave face on. Exactly. So, and yeah, someone who like fine. brings a lot of cigarettes and booze, you know? Yeah, fine. <laughs> very important. Okay, well that's good. I think that's that's probably the first step in your um in your pal Christmas, right? Is that if you have a Christmas orphan, then it's easier to believe that you know your boring and yes. family are actually um you know New York loft inhabitants. That's what I mean. I just want the New York loft Christmas where we like have a really chic meal and then we do what we want and we have people over. I mean, pandemic notwithstanding, obviously. So uh, <laughs> here here are my tips. Um, pick one of the favourite members of your family, pretend they're your friend and create some fake gossip with them over a cocktail. Mm. Oh, um, very good. Get that sort of friend vibe started. Um, And also, uh, you're going to have to really lower your expectations about presents. Because I don't know about you, presents from your mates versus presents from your parents are very different. Like, your best Mm. mates will, like find your favourite song on a rare vinyl that's been, like, signed by the artist that they, they were eBaying for, like, in August. Or they'll, like, book you a meal at your favourite restaurant or give you a jacket that you'd seen in the window eight months ago and thought, like, wasn't even in stock anymore. Or they'll get your, like, favourite drag race star to do you a cameo. All really thoughtful <laughs> gifts and things that you're like, oh, God, my friends really are my family. And then your parents will be like, here's 20 quid and some shoes you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> God, here's some slippers so again. Yeah, uh, they'll be like, here's a book of a TV show you mentioned in March. <laughs> oh, totally. And they're like, there's something very depressing about getting like a gag gift off of your family as well. Yes, yes. Like a toilet book or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's always like some slightly mean reflection of what they think of you. Like, yeah. like a, like a, I don't know. I haven't got this, but I know someone who did get this, like a, um, Sil- a, a silver encrusted like hashtag symbol <gasps> like stuff like that like very much like what to get your millennial child you resent you know oh no that's awful <laughs> so depressing yeah exactly it's like they've taken what people like in black and white and they've put it through the generator and it's come out with like the most literal present oh, totally. you could ever think of yeah. and it's it's awful so you just have to lower your expectations and think you know I'm going to get some weird stuff, but I can give it to charity and be a good person. Also, you originally built this as a horny Christmas, Hannah. Well, don't worry, there's a horny section. Because <laughs> if you were in London, and you, or sorry, wherever you live, and you're with your friends, you could be like, oh, I'll invite that guy over that I was seeing, or this guy I was dating, or maybe my ex-boyfriend that I still get on really well with. And it'll be like, lovely, and maybe we'll have a Christmas snog. Wonderful. No, you're at home, so you're dating your seasonal worker for two weeks, and that means your boyfriend from when you were 16 that's just gone through his first divorce and used to drive a Citroen AX. Um, And you're going to have to see him, I'm afraid. And yeah, he's sure he's fun, but he's not the chic Christmas lover that you'd planned for. Um, So you, you have to sort of swap that around as well. Um, and you know, maybe pull one of your siblings' friends. I don't know. Like that's yeah. what you've got to you've got to think. Oh about that. yeah. I mean, like obviously, I've been married for a thousand years, so yeah. I don't get this as much. But there is this part of a Christmas at home where you feel like you're kind of like in an indie movie, where like yes. you're 
so like, a, like a friend like from school who you kind of ran into in town and you got a drink with and then they, they kind of drop you home and they know where you live because they used to go to house parties at your house and then yeah. it's very frosty in their car and there's a little bit of tension and you're a bit like am I in a film <laughs> is it this, is it's, it's like, like am I film? like in the family yeah. stone <laughs> yeah I said the other day to um Rich Spalding uh who is a friend of the show um, I said, I was like, I just want to watch an indie film where someone goes for like a midnight drive at 1am in their hometown. <laughs> oh my God, such a... Mi- I, whenever I'm in a car at night that doesn't belong to my parents in my hometown, I feel like I'm in an indie film. I'm like, yes. at Sundance. <laughs> I'm promoting it at Sundance. I think it's also saying Merry Christmas instead of saying goodbye. Yes. Yes. Oh my God, that's so good, Anna. Just like shutting the car door and being like, Merry Christmas, dunk. Oh god. It's so sexy. Why is it so sexy? I I, only these films from now until January the first. <laughs> Merry Christmas, dunk. <laughs> Roll credits. Right? Yeah. And it's like the same it's like you've regressed to the same thing that you were doing, but everyone has a kid that they no longer have full custody of. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. I feel like there's one thing which um you haven't included yet, which I feel like is important for, Ooh, for a pal sitcom Christmas, which is some kind of hilarious misunderstanding. Like two turkeys or no turkey. Uh, yes. Or um, you know, like when Monica makes a trifle with beef. Yes. Uh yeah, an amusing incident. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's because like at a wedding where it's mostly your friends and mostly people your own age, if you're of our generation, um, there's always an exciting incident. And I feel like that's what would happen at a, at a pal Christmas at my friend's wedding. The most sort of Richard Curtis thing ever happened. And it was a it was a winter wedding, actually, so it felt very Christmassy. Mm. And uh, my friend just came up to me and she just went, the pianist has forgotten his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? And she was like, the pianist has forgotten his shirt and I was like well he can't play topless and then hilarity ensued and eventually the pianist got a shirt oh Um, I love it and I think that's what you need on Christmas you're right Hannah you need something to go wrong you need there to be not enough tables and chairs so somebody's like lying on the bed eating their Christmas dinner yeah you need Um, someone to who's forgotten to table the presents yep exactly so you give a dildo to your grandma oh marry that somebody's um, brought a date that they met like 36 hours ago on a big night and haven't left yet. <laughs> can I can I tell yeah. you my best like Christmas catastrophe story? Yes. It's honestly, Please. it's the last you'll hear from me. It's my favourite thing. So um, last year, uh, me and Gavin and Gavin's family, we went to like a hotel in the Cotswolds sort of thing because just like for Lovely. a change, we're like, how about we don't do presents and instead we all go to a really nice hotel, no one lifts a finger and we all like go to the spa and stuff. Um, which was, you know, very, very nice, if not for the fact that um, neither of my in-laws really like doing nothing. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> and Gavin immediately got the, the norovirus. <gasps> yeah. Oh. So, oh, yeah. No. So he was sort of shitting water for <laughs> three days and I was just in the spa with this lovely girl I met called Gabby. But that's not the point. <laughs> um, so on the on the boxing day, there was like the hotel sort of said that they were doing, and they emailed everybody sort of weeks and weeks in advance saying, we have this boxing day, like gala dinner, black tie event. We do it every year. We're so excited to have you, our guest, at it. And like... Well, I was like, wow, this is exciting. And I brought like a fancy dress along. And, uh, you know, on the day of it, like it was all very lovely. All the food was nice all weekend. And we were all really looking forward to this gala dinner on the Boxing Day. Wonderful. And like there was all these like 
the most amount of Tories I've ever shared a room with. <gasps> all like in their 60s, 70s and 80s. All wearing like floor length red sequins and like really formal tuxedos and stuff. The, the evening's entertainment was just a local girl from the village playing fast car on her acoustic guitar. Oh no. <laughs> the food was all clear because all the staff had been working from Christmas Eve and they all wanted to go home. The food yeah. was cleared away by like 8.30. And at that point they were just, they closed the bar and there was just like nothing. And they just like had got all these Tories into their best clothes. And then they were doing nothing with them. And they were, I, they were absolutely outraged. They descended on the night manager and they was like, you promised us entertainment. You promised us a gala dinner. Where is it? You guys all dressed up with nowhere to go. And they were like literally putting him in a corner. They might as well have had like a broken bottle up to his neck. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because we are the only people, me and Gavin and his brother, are the only people who are the same generation as his night manager who doesn't speak very much English. He comes up to us and he's like, you have to help me. I don't know what to do. They're going to kill me. And um, like my, my brother-in-law Ash was just like, okay, um, do you have a phone and an auxiliary cable because then we can hook it up to the speakers and we can get a little disco going. And he was like, yes, I do have a phone. And so, he, so Ash gets the night manager's phone, finds an aux cable, hooks it up to the speakers, finds out the guy does not have Spotify and is oh. like, okay, oh. but he does have the YouTube app. I will open the YouTube app and I will use the music and pipe that through to the speakers. Right. And what that night manager, the Hungarian night manager, had on his YouTube oh, before oh. we hooked in that auxiliary cable <laughs> was a video called Three Hours of Farting. <laughs> <laughs> I, to this day, have never found out why it was called Three Hours of Farting. It's still a mystery, but it was just fart noises coming out over this beautiful Cotswolds hotel with these incredibly fancy people who were so angry. That's the sort of thing that if you wrote it into a book, it wouldn't sound believable. That's the, th- that's the thing. It's meant to, it's like so, like I was stand. I was like literally, I fell on the ground. Like it was like, it was like somebody had cut my Achilles tendon when it happened. I just fell on the ground and started laughing. <laughs> It was incredible. Oh, I cannot top that. Uh, that that is why you need a pal Christmas, or at least a strange one, a stranger one than normal, is what I yeah. mean. Yeah. Sometimes bad Christmases are better than good Christmases because they power the good Christmases. They give you something to talk about. Yes, mm. exactly. You'll be um, talking about the the three hours of farting forever. I think. Oh, forever and ever. Yeah, absolutely. And how many times did you loop it before everyone got bored and went to bed? <laughs> <laughs> And for thirty thousand hours, <laughs> I believe. I believe the music that we went on to next was like it was like the recommended thing in the channel. Which of the next thing was for some reason was "Moves Like Jagger" by Maroon Five. Oh wow! Which <laughs> okay. Who knew sure. that was like kin to three hours of farting? YouTube thinks so. <laughs> That's brilliant. I ca- I can't top that. Let's end. <laughs> let's end the episode there on three hours of farting, which is the sister name for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's all our farting for this week. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can hear more by searching School for Dumb Women on your favourite podcast app and following us on the usual social media platforms at Dumb Women Pod. You can also hear us on Soho Radio every other Thursday at 6pm. Thank you to Gavin Day for our artwork, Harry Harris for our jingles and Soho Radio Studios. Good fart. A good fart to you.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.